I also want to say quickly just a thank you to um, to uh, I'm so sorry to Gina Boscovich, her daughters uh, Emily and Maddie, who took it upon themselves and volunteered their time this week uh, to set up our uh, Christmas decorations, and so. Um, in years past, we've had a team of people led by Jessica who's done that. And so if you've been in a part of that, you know that that's no small thing. That's a big, big thing. And so we're just very, very thankful for those who serve us in that way, even in helping to make our facility a bit warmer and, um, and really, again, to help direct and center our thoughts upon the Lord. And I also want to thank, as you turn to Isaiah chapter 9, we begin our Advent series this year. Advent 2014 will be out of Isaiah 9, and for that, I want to praise God, and I also want to thank, and she doesn't know this, and uh, if that's okay, I just want to give thanks to God for Sarah Miller, because it was about, I want to say three or four months ago, when I was really kind of thinking about, God, what would you have me preach as an Advent series, what would you have us hear uh, where would you like us to be? What, what text or texts would you like us to really focus on? And it was during that time when I was thinking, praying, I had a, you know, three or four different ideas in mind when Jan Miller shared with me a conversation she had with her daughter Sarah. And Sarah said, why doesn't Wayne preach from the Old Testament? <laughs> Or why has it been so long? Now, I preached a series in Daniel. That was the last book that I preached in the Old Testament. Um, and so I just so appreciated that. I appreciate that reminder. And, and just so that you know, I'm not avoiding the Old Testament at all. My typical practice is to preach a book from the Old, then a book from the New. I think what happened is we preached a book from the Old, Daniel, and then we did some standalone series in the New, and then started a book in the new, the, the Gospel of John. But because of Sarah's exhortation, <laughs> I took it as encouragement. And I really, I took it as direction from God that this Advent season, we're going to center our thoughts around the Word of God as recorded in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. So with your Bibles open, let's read that or follow along as we read that together. But there will be no gloom. There will be no gloom. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them, a light has shined you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest 
and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. Amen. No other birth in the long history of the world can compare with the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When he was born, he was the earthly son of his heavenly father and the heavenly son of his earthly mother. At this birth, at his birth, he was as old as his father in heaven and older than his mother here upon the earth. When he was born, he was fully God, fully man, yet without sin. He was the God-man. He was the Son of God, the Son of Man. He was God in human flesh. Regarding this birth of this child, it was designed by the Father in eternity past. It was foretold by the prophets throughout the centuries preceding His coming. It was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin. It was announced by the angels witnessed by the shepherds, resisted by Herod, and proclaimed by the apostles to the ends of the earth. All human history is measured by the birth of this child. All time before his birth is marked by B.C., before Christ, and all times after this birth is A.D., the year of our Lord. All of history pivots around the birth of this child who was born unto us. It is toward the birth of this child that we give our attention this morning. In this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9, this prophecy was written over 700 years before the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is a glorious testimony of the truthfulness of the word of God. Centuries before the Lord Jesus came into this world, the prophets foretold with pinpoint accuracy where he would be born in Bethlehem, how he would be born of a virgin, to whom he would be born, to the nation Israel, to the lineage of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David, why he would be born, to crush the head of the serpent, and to save his people from their sins. And so it is to this birth that I now want to draw your attention 
as it is found here in the pages of Old Testament Scripture, written seven centuries before our Lord ever entered this world in the Incarnation. These are the introductory words of pastor, author, scholar, Stephen J. Lawson from a sermon he once preached on Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, and I recite them for you because after hearing these words, I could not think of a better introduction. I could not think of a better way to introduce this passage that lies open before us this morning and foretells the birth of our dear Savior. This morning, as you know, marks the first Sunday of Advent. Traditionally begins four Sundays before Christmas and continues through Christmas Eve. This word Advent comes from a Latin root, which means coming, and it speaks to the arrival of someone or something quite notable. So in Christian terms, Advent speaks to the arrival, to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Advent is a time of anticipation and celebration, a time of waiting and wonder. It's a time of hope. 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 It's what these words in Isaiah 9 are all about. Hope. And so in many days, what I want to do this morning is just kind of introduce the entire series. I think this passage lays a foundation of hope that sets the stage for our consideration of the four names, the four names of Christ listed in verse 6. We want to take each of these four names one by one, one week at a time. But today, we're going to step back and introduce the series as we walk through these verses. I want to consider three things today. Hope promised. Hope provided. And hope personified. Dear people, we have hope from God this morning because Christ is hope incarnate. Isaiah chapter 9 presupposes distress and despair. In fact, chapter 8 ends with these words concerning the people of God. Verse 21, they, the God's people, they will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and they will speak contemptuously against their king 
and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. What's going on here? What's happening in this passage? The people were in crisis. Isaiah is writing specifically to the southern kingdom of Judah and to the king of that kingdom, or he's writing about the southern kingdom of Judah and the king of that kingdom, Ahaz. The Assyrian Empire was growing and advancing. The northern kingdom, remember the kingdom was divided north and south. The northern kingdom of Israel had moved its capital to Ephraim and allied itself with Syria, not Assyria, but Syria, in the effort to withstand the Assyrian onslaught. And then to further their cause and bolster their alliance, uh, Ephraim and Syria turn to Judah and they tell Ahaz in no, um, in no, what am I trying to say? In no uncertain terms, in no uncertain terms, they tell Ahaz either join them or else. You'll either join us or you'll be destroyed by us. So Judah was threatened on multiple fronts. The Assyrians were advancing and Israel was giving an ultimatum and King Ahaz was afraid. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 2 says, When the house of David, Judah, was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. In other words, Ahaz was was afraid to the very core of his being, and so were his people, and fear often brings out the worst in us. Fear often derails faith. Circumstantial fear or as Jim said this morning in his welcome, the cares of this world often wars against faith in God. Such was the case with King Ahaz. And yet as we read the account, we see that God was so gracious and kind to Ahaz God sent Isaiah to Ahaz to reassure him. God tells Isaiah to tell Ahaz to fear not because God himself will deal with Ephraim and Syria. God himself will deliver Judah out of their hands. Moreover, God would use the Assyrians to do so. All Ahaz needed to do was trust in God. And then to further this point or to stress this point, God himself went to Ahaz and he said to him in chapter 7, verse 11, he says to Ahaz, ask 
a sign of the Lord your God. He says, let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. In other words, God is saying, let me reassure you, Ahaz. Let me put your fears to rest. Just ask me, just ask me, Ahaz. Just ask me for a sign, any sign, and I'll prove it to you. God is just being so loving, right? In fact, there's a sense that he's bending over backwards to reassure Ahaz, but Ahaz responds, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Scared out of his mind, although scared out of his mind, Ahaz Ahaz hides behind his stubborn pride and some sense of false piety. He refuses God's offer under the guise of not wanting to test God. By the way, when God offers, it's not putting him to the test. So the armies of Syria and Ephraim, that alliance, that alliance attacks Judah. You can read of this in 2 Kings 16. Ahaz turns from God and calls out to the king of Assyria instead. He calls Judah the servant of Assyria. He gives silver and gold from the temple treasury to the Assyrian king in exchange for protection against the advancing alliance. And peace in Judah was lost. From that point on, Judah was a puppet nation under Assyrian control eventually conquered by Babylon, then sent into Babylonian exile. And here's the point. Ahaz had a choice to make. Will he trust God and God's promise and God's provision, or will he bail on God and go his own way? When it seemed to Ahaz that all hell was breaking loose. To whom will he turn? And although the end result may have been the same in that either way, notice either way, God used the Assyrians to remove the threat from Syria and Ephraim Either way, God used the Assyrians, but Ahaz took means into his own hands rather than trust the Lord because Ahaz took a path of his own choosing and refused the path of God. He experienced the consequences of his sin and brought contempt on the people of his kingdom. This is the background to Isaiah 9, and I think this strikes home because we are often faced with a similar dilemma, aren't we? To choose, really, between fear 
or faith. We're in this struggle to respond either in fear or in faith. Just yesterday, I was talking with someone about this very thing, how we are constantly bombarded with things that threaten our faith and tempt us to turn from God. Praying with the elders this morning. And even as we looked around the circle into each other's eyes, we confessed and realized that this is a daily struggle. When we look to our circumstances, when we, when we look to, when we see our circumstances, will we look and turn to God or Will we trust ourselves or lean upon some earthly means of rescue? Will we grab on to God when he graciously moves to help us or will we be prideful or even falsely pious and refuse his help and love? Ultimately, ultimately, the question is, do you look to God for salvation? Absolutely, for salvation in the ultimate sense, salvation from sin and death. But do you look to God from salvation in the daily sense? Every day, right? Every day we need to be saved from fear and anxiety and threats to our peace. Every day we need to be saved from our own tendency to rely upon our own strength and lean upon our own wisdom every day. Do you look to God for salvation or are you attempting to save yourself? Isaiah chapter 9 is set against this backdrop. It deals with trust and obedience. It deals with the consequences of disobedience. It deals with God's discipline, even of those he loves. And it deals with the faithfulness of God who brings hope to the hopeless. You see, there was a remnant in Judah who clung to the promise of hope, even when their world came crashing down around them. These are the people who say in chapter 8, verse 17, I will wait for the Lord. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Hope. They had the promise of hope and as the prophecy of chapter 9 unfolds, we see that hope was not only promised, but provided as well. Isaiah writes these prophetic words some 700 years before the birth of Christ at a time when the people were in thick darkness and he is bringing hope. It's as if he is saying, God is faithful, faithful to his people, faithful to his promises, faithful to provide. And the way God faithfully provides is through Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. Isaiah looked down the corridors of time and he saw the time of Christ carried along by the Spirit of God. He saw the coming Messiah and the eternal effects of his birth 
So here we see in verses 1 through 7, we see hope described and hope explained. Hope is described in the first few verses. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. On them a light has shone. No more gloom, no more anguish, no more contempt, no more darkness. A new day was dawning. Heaven was coming to earth. Those walking in darkness suddenly found themselves blinking under a new light. God had ushered in a new era, an era of triumphant grace, the eternal Son of God, Himself divine, was born. Jesus Christ is true light from God. He is the light of the world as we've been reading in John 8, and he promises the light of life, life in God and with God to any and all who follow him. And those who follow him, please hear this, those who follow him should pause right now to thank God. For we once walked in darkness. in the deep dark of sin and death, but by God's grace, the life-giving light that shone from heaven to earth when Christ was born, the scriptures say, has likewise shone into our hearts, though we were dead in trespasses and sin, God, being rich in mercy, has made us alive together with Christ. Thank you. Thank you. We should pause right now to give thanks to God. Let those of us who follow Jesus Christ today give thanks to God for our sure hope in His Son, whom He has provided in love. We did nothing to earn it. Nothing to merit His favor. In fact, everything about us deserves wrath apart from Christ. Let us rejoice. This is what Isaiah says in in verse 3. Let us rejoice like that uh, with joy. We want to rejoice with joy like that of the farmer at harvest or the victor when dividing the spoil. Or some more modern, closer-to-home examples, perhaps. The joy of having God's grace is exuberant, triumphant, enthusiastic joy. It's like, it's like an unexpected bonus at payday, but much more than that. 
It's like the Giants locker room after winning the World Series. Jumping and shouting and screaming and dancing and laughing and crying and celebrating. But it's much more than that. Are you with me? The grace of God through Jesus Christ brings joy incomparable. The triumph of God's grace over our sin is joy unspeakable. It is light that pierces deep darkness. It is life as opposed to death. It is hope when all appears hopeless. Hope is described in verses 1 through 3 and then explained in verses 4 through 7. Why? Why do we have such hope? Well, Isaiah gives three reasons, each beginning with the word for. We have hope for God defeats our enemies, verse 4, and God secures our victory, verse 5. For the yoke of his burden and the, and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken. Isaiah is speaking to God. You have broken as on the day of Midian for every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult. And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Isaiah pictures a day when the child of God is completely free from the oppression of his enemy. He mentions the day of Midian, referring to Gideon and Gideon's surprising victory over the Midianite hordes. God paired Gideon's army down from 32,000 men to 300, remember. 300 trumpet-blowing, jar-smashing, torch-carrying men who resoundingly defeated the Midianite masses. What's he saying? Isaiah wants the people to remember that just as God brought the victory then, even when circumstances suggested otherwise, so too does God bring victory now through this one who is far greater than Gideon. It's a good reminder for us. Though we live on this side of the birth of Christ and we've experienced his triumph in ways they didn't, still we're prone to forget that victory is sure. Christ has resoundingly defeated the greatest enemy of all. Sin and death. And all who are in Christ share in his triumph. Today is like D-Day in that the battle still rages, but the war itself is effectively won. And a day is coming when even the battles will cease. Isaiah sees a day when every warrior's boot and every blood-stained garment will be thrown into the fire. 
perhaps a bonfire of sorts. A bonfire that celebrates the victory of God. The reason we have such hope is because God defeats our enemies and secures our victory. And the reason we have such hope, verse 6, is because God has given us a son. A savior. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We need to see and remember again that God's answer to everything that has ever threatened or terrified us, God's answer to everything that has ever threatened or terrified us is a child. child who rules over all things with justice and righteousness and peace and whose rule will increase forever this child is hope personified so in a sense everything I've said thus far is introduction What I want to do now and over the next four weeks is consider the four names, these four names mentioned in verse 6, the names of this child who is hope personified. It says his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Literally, it means a wonder of a counselor. Isaiah is saying that Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, the one who defeats all enemies and secures complete victory, who brings joy incomparable and light that pierces even the deepest darkness, in whom all our hopes rest and who himself is hope personified, this Jesus is a wonder of a counselor. He is full of wonder. He is incomprehensible. He is indescribable. He is beyond human thought. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are beyond our thoughts. I don't know 
why the Lord gives some things and takes away others. I don't know why this family in Kabul was destroyed in this way, separated. I don't know the mind of God, but I know that his ways are higher than ours and his thoughts are far beyond ours. We consider the divine nature of Christ, his eternality, his pre-existence, his preeminence, his infinitude, his divine and incommunicable attributes, his oneness with God in triune relationship. We are left stunned and amazed as we consider the humanity of this Christ, his selflessness, his service, his sinlessness, his sacrifice, his saving work in the lives of people from every age, every nation, every time and place, we are left astonished. We are in awe of him who is a wonder of a counselor. In the Lord Jesus Christ are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So says Colossians 2, verse 3, earthly counselors need counsel themselves. They read books, they go to school, they surround themselves with advisors, but not Christ. For to whom does the Lord go for advice? Who has been his counselor? He knows what is right always. He knows what is true always. He knows what is best in any and every given situation. The wisest thing we can do is follow this Jesus who is a wonder of a counselor. I stand before you this morning as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And I urge us all to look to him. I urge you to listen to him. To learn from him and his word. To live as he instructs. His well is deep. His decisions are infallible. His ways are inscrutable. He knows the mind of God always. And he knows the human heart always. He knows the way of salvation and he saves. He will save you first from sin's power and penalty and he will bring you to God. And he will save you also from sin's presence, sanctifying you every day until the day he comes again and saves to the uttermost. Whatever storm you're in, God is over it. Whatever fears you're face, facing, God is faithful. Whatever tempts you to take matters into your own hands, God is able. Turn. Will you turn with me? Let us turn from going our own way. Let us turn from relying on earthly wisdom and power as Ahaz did from resting in pride and false piety like him. Let us hope in Christ instead. Will you hope with me this morning? Bring every need, 
Bring every need. Bring every question. Bring every concern to him. Bring your every sin to him, especially your sin. Despair no more. Walk in darkness no more. Yes, indeed, the wisest thing you can ever do is chart the course of your life by the light of this Jesus, who is a wonder of a counselor. That Jesus Christ is a is wonderful counselor means he reveals the plan and power of God which was purposed before the foundation of the world. That means that God always planned to save and the power with which he saves is realized through Christ who is hope personified. And what makes this counsel so full of wonder is that this Jesus came to us as a child flying in the face of worldly wisdom. This Jesus was given to us as a gift from God for to us a child is born to us a son is given not just to Mary not just to Joseph not just to Judah or Israel, but to us, referring to us all, to all who hope in Christ. And we're going to touch on these themes again in the coming weeks, but I have just one more thing before closing. Very briefly, I just want you to notice that Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, reads from the vantage point of someone who already experienced the complete fulfillment of this prophecy. Though written seven centuries before the birth of Christ, Isaiah writes as if God's promises had already come true. As if God's provision in the Messiah had already achieved its full effect. In other words, God or Isaiah is saying to them and to us that God's plan is full proof. So much so that he can speak of it as having already occurred. Dear people, that's why our hope is sure. Because our hope is fixed on the promise of God and on the child of promise. Hope promised, hope provided, hope personified. So whether plagued by sin or circumstance or both, 
I urge you to look to and learn from and live in Jesus Christ, whose name is called Wonderful Counselor. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ, hope that is a sure anchor for the soul. Confident hope that rests securely in your promise and your provision and in the one who is hope personified. I pray for each person who hears these words this morning, for myself included, would you cause us all to turn from the cares of this world, to repent from going our own way, trusting in our own strength, leaning upon our own wisdom, to instead grab hold of this child, this one who came to us as an infant babe, lived and taught us the way, died in our stead, and rose again, that we might live in him. We pray it in his great name. Amen.